This week, we discuss legalization from the bottom up, how Michigan could be the new California, and how hemp can save the world. Coming up next on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical Grass. Hi, I'm Rick Thompson. I'm from Flint, Michigan, the United States of America, and I'm an entrepreneur and cannabis activist. That was Max Van S. with a track called Michigan Terminal Station. This week's episode having to do with Michigan, of course, which was in the news late in 2018 for becoming the first U.S. state in the Midwest region to legalize the use of recreational cannabis, beating out states such as Illinois, which would have been my guess as far as which Midwest state would be the first to legalize adult-use cannabis, but alas, politics got in the way, and Michigan crossed the finish line first by actively pushing for legalization from the ground up, as you will soon hear. To discuss this topic, I contacted the representative of the Michigan chapter of Normal, Rick Thompson. Rick is very active in the field of cannabis. He was named Citizen Activist of the Year in 2015. He has written for High Times, Life, and Culture magazine. He is an editor for the Social Revolution and a contributor to the Weed News. You can hear him on Jazz Cabbage Cafe and the Planet Green Trees radio show. So not only does he talk the talk, but he also walks the walk through his activism. He's a board member of the Michigan chapters of Normal and Legalize. Well, not only does Rick know his stuff with regards to all things cannabis, he's also very eager to share his knowledge and spread the canna gospel. I asked Rick to describe his background a bit and how he got involved in the cannabis industry. In 2008, Michigan legalized medical marijuana Uh, I was a retail store manager uh, in a furniture industry at that time. Uh, One year later, I started the Michigan Medical Marijuana Magazine and was on the board of directors of a dispensary organization. Over the last seven or eight years, I've uh, published several magazines. I do radio, uh, regular radio as well as podcasts. Uh, I host a small business conference series called the Michigan Cannabis Business Development Group. Uh, I'm also on the board of directors of uh, the normal chapter here in Michigan, as well as been uh, at the helm or in the leadership role for three attempts at legalization in Michigan, one of which was successful this last November. Well, I'm, I'm of course, a, a cannabis enthusiast myself personally, but I'm also a father. I have three children, and I, I have a strong desire to leave the world a better place than I found it. And with cannabis activism, 
it was a way that my particular skill set could be put to use immediately. And also it was a, a groundswell of enthusiasm after the medical program, but there was also no information available. So we found people that were finding themselves accidental criminals simply because they didn't understand what the rules were. And the state of Michigan didn't do a very good job of disseminating what those rules were or explaining things to people. So we took on the role of information gatekeeper. And I've tried to extend that throughout my entire career, whether it's internet journalism, whether it's radio shows, podcasts, or traditional publications. Lack of information inspired Rick to get into activism and educate people on the benefits of cannabis. Decades of propaganda or just straight-up ignorance have taken their toll on the state of knowledge surrounding the cannabis plant, and Rick decided something needed to be done. So he took the initiative and went out to fight the good fight. The anti-cannabis propaganda had taken its toll over the past several decades, and Rick decided it was time to reverse the damage. Now we're starting to see the fruits of his labor and that of his activist colleagues. Cannabis and cannabis culture aren't exactly new to Michigan, however, and before the recreational laws were introduced last year, Michigan had a medical cannabis program in place since 2008. But when you look at what that medical cannabis law permitted compared to other states in the region, you would think Michigan was an outlier of sorts. And it kind of is. Rick gives us insight here as to why that is. Well, what we're seeing here is the difference between laws that were created by the people, as Michigan did with a petition drive to initiate legislation, or something derived from a legislative source, as you see in Illinois. Legislatures tend to refine, define, and constrict things to a greater degree, especially things that they are afraid of. And cannabis is a new thing for a lot of people in elected office to be supportive of. In Michigan, our medical program came as a result of a petition drive and citizen-directed initiative. So that means the citizens, the people, wrote the rules. So when we said people can have two and a half ounces to walk around with, that was something the legislature never would have given us. When we said 12 plants per household, which was, by the way, the most generous allowance in the entire United States in 2008, uh, that's not something the legislature would have given us. And we've seen the example of this with the medical marijuana business program that I mentioned earlier. Although it's been inactive, active rather for two months, it has still very few licensees. Less than 100 companies have been licensed in five different industries. So that's because the legislature put a lot of requirements on the licensure of those things. Now, our legalization proposal here in Michigan was again the result of a petition drive and a voter-directed initiative. So our legalization allowances are very generous. We mirror the 2.5 ounces of personal possession, but we also give people the ability to keep 10 ounces at their home and keep the entire proceeds of their plants, which is something that we didn't see in other states. So very, very progressive legalization program here in Michigan, but it's because it was citizen directed and not legislatively derived. In short, Petition drives and voter-directed initiatives is what has given Michiganders a huge leg up over other states. Instead of being at the mercy of legislators, the citizens of Michigan are the ones that wrote the rules, 
which would explain their quite generous allowances for cannabis that you would normally expect from progressive states like California and Colorado, perhaps. However, legislation is not all sunshine and roses, as you may have guessed, and Michigan's cannabis laws are no exception, as Rick explains. Well, the legislation that created the business program was originally created by citizens who initiated it in the legislature. However, over the course of six years, that legislation was taken and twisted and uh, experienced a lot of manipulation due to special interests. And so the end result of that program is very dissimilar to what we originally started with six years ago. So right now, they're having a difficult time licensing businesses because they've set very large capitalization requirements. They've set unrealistic background requirements. Uh, they've got extensive criminal monitoring and, and uh, financial testing. So <clears throat> we've seen uh, a legislature take an idea of something that was beautiful and pure and then really flip it on its head into something that's more, uh, more unwieldy and difficult to utilize. That's why after two years of licensing, we still see less than 100 businesses licensed in Michigan. The end result of the, the medical marijuana business program, which is called the Medical Marijuana Facilities Licensing Act, it has become larger than we intended. Uh, it is more commercially derived and less uh, citizen derived, which is what we had hoped for originally. So but this is an example of the citizens who start a process and who stay involved in it, uh, still unfortunately having it taken away from them by the hands of industry and, and traditional wheels of government. So that's why in Michigan, we were very fortunate to have the petition option. About 23 states in the United States have the ability to use petition drives in order to initiate legislation like we did. Many states don't have that option which is why in the U.S. we've seen medical and legalized marijuana programs be difficult to start in states without that ability because they have to have a legislature who agrees to and initiates those new types of laws. And that has been traditionally hard to find here in the U.S. Businesses are having a tough time getting licensed as a result of interference from the top. So, while it is incredibly frustrating to have the authorities and or big business interfere with your work, it's still noteworthy and praiseworthy that Michigan has gotten this far in terms of cannabis legalization. So, how do things look as far as medical cannabis in Michigan is concerned? Well, we had medicinal cannabis elected uh, 10 years prior to the election where we selected legalized marijuana. So the personal freedoms had extended for about 10 years. Uh, the business program itself uh, the, was only recognized about two years ago, and the medical marijuana business program is still very much in its infancy here, which causes a little bit of confusion. Uh, we have uh, personal freedoms without a whole lot of places for people to purchase cannabis, so they're either growing it themselves or using the illicit market in order to supply themselves. Any adult 21 years or of age or older can apply for a medical marijuana card. However, they have to have a doctor's signature indicating that there is a medicinal need for the cannabis. Anyone under 21 years of age can also apply for medicinal cannabis, but they require two doctors to certify them for pediatric use. So in Michigan, everyone that receives a patient card is eligible to either grow 12 plants themselves or they can designate a caregiver who can grow the 12 plants on their behalf. 
currently Michigan has about 313,000 registered patients, which makes us the second largest patient population in the United States behind only California. And we have approximately 45,000 people who have been registered to cultivate plants on behalf of one of those patients. So a doctor's recommendation is necessary regardless of age or the condition in order to get a medical cannabis card. Where Michigan is way ahead of other neighboring states with medical cannabis programs in place is home cultivation. As Rick stated, 12 plants is the limit in Michigan, whereas the more populous Illinois, one lake over, allows for a whopping zero. Illinois also has a comparatively short, specific list of conditions qualifying patients for obtaining a cannabis card. I asked Rick what the qualifying conditions were, if any, in his state. Well, we do have a list of conditions that allow people to use medical marijuana, but it's important that not only do we have named illnesses, but we also have cited ailments. For example, we could have uh, Crohn's disease, which is a named illness, but also chronic pain, which is an ailment. So chronic pain covers many, many illnesses, and it, it alleviates the ability or the necessity of naming all of these, these horrible things that could happen to people. We also have tremors, several other chronic diseases, chronic issues. So those serve as sort of a catch-all that physicians can use when they want to recommend cannabis use for a patient, but the specific issue that they're dealing with may not be articulated in the law. For example, myself, I suffer from horrible migraines. Now, migraines are not listed as a medical marijuana condition, but chronic pain is. So I was able to qualify for my medical marijuana card under the chronic pain listing. Based on Rick's account, Michigan's medical cannabis program is much more inclusive than its neighbors, mainly thanks to their allowance for cited ailments, in other words, conditions that doctors can't immediately confirm, such as chronic pain. With over 300,000 registered patients, it's safe to say the state of Michigan is doing a much better job getting cannabis to those in need than in a state like Illinois, which has a population of over 12 million, yet only about 50,000 registered medical cannabis patients, or one-sixth of Michigan's total cannabis patients. So we have an idea as to who can qualify for medical cannabis in the Wolverine state. What about the amounts patients can have to stay on the right side of the law? The state has regulated the amount that you can purchase, and they've limited it to 2.5 ounces per day, which mirrors the amount that you're able to actually carry at one particular time, with a cap of 10 ounces purchased per 30-day month. We have an equivalency chart, which means that um, a certain number of ounces of liquid translates into one ounce of flour, a certain number of grams of concentrate translate to one ounce of flour. So they've done a good job of uh, creating allowances so that law enforcement and patients can easily determine whether or not they're in compliance based on what they have. And it's important because when we're talking about criminal penalties for drug crimes, we want to know exactly where the boundaries are, exactly where it's okay and exactly where it's not okay. And in the past, there's been some vagueness expressed in regards to the quantities available. Now we have serious definitions, and that's helpful to keep people out of harm's way. So we have a general idea as to what direction Michigan's medical cannabis scheme will head. How about the recreational program? Is it going to look anything like California's, or should we expect something different? Well, the program that California experiences is where Michigan is headed. 
In other words, we would have both medical stores as well as recreational stores. Currently, because we've only had recreational authorized uh, since December 6th, which is less than one month ago, there haven't been rules promulgated by the government yet to regulate those legalized cannabis sales. So at this point, we're in between the time of election and the time of enactment. Now, personal freedoms are already authorized. So I can have 10 ounces right here while we're Skyping in a gigantic bag, uh, and I would still be perfectly legal. Whereas prior to, I would have a cap of only 2.5 ounces that would be uh, my uh, limit. However, a recreational user cannot go into a store today to make a purchase. Although probably during the latter portion of 2019, that will be enabled. This, the government has 12 months that they're allowed to take to come up with the rules to regulate those recreational cannabis stores. And the recreational cannabis industry will be based on the medical cannabis business industry, too. So we won't be reinventing the wheel. It should be much easier to launch the recreational industry, which is what gives us confidence that perhaps we'll see those before the end of 2019, because it won't be such a terrible thing to have to do. Now, we've set up a program where uh, individual persons can transfer cannabis between themselves without compensation, but you can't have those type of transfers on a commercial basis. So there may be people that try to push the envelope selling that $100 t-shirt that happens to have a half ounce wrapped up in it, uh, but that's not really the way it was intended to work. And those type of transactions would be irregular and certainly not the norm. So I'm sure that that will take place. People always try to find a way to, to uh, make commercial transactions out of any situation. But I think uh, our intent was not to allow that type of thing. If what Rick says is true, Michigan just may become the new California, at least in terms of how liberally it treats both medical and recreational cannabis. While Michigan certainly will never have the same climate as California, and with it, the same legends and folklore as places such as the Emerald Triangle or the Bay Area, Michigan has indeed had a vibrant cannabis culture for quite a while. I think it's fair to say that cannabis culture has been extremely strong in Michigan for a long time now. John Sinclair, who uh, uh, in the 70s was jailed, he was given 10 years in prison for having two marijuana joints. Uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono wrote a song about John Sinclair. They came in to Michigan to perform it uh, at the Chrysler Arena, uh, in the very first uh, what we call hash bash now. And the genesis of that event created a lasting annual event called the hash bash, which we do every year. But it also helped to generate cannabis-friendly citizenries in the city of Ann Arbor, the city of Traverse City, in Flint, where I'm from, in Detroit where there was a more relaxed attitude about cannabis in those cities. For example, Ann Arbor, for decades, had a policy where if you were caught with small amounts of cannabis, you got a $5 fine. $5 is nothing, right? So that was a, almost a, a de facto decriminalized zone. And Ann Arbor is home of the University of Michigan, one of the nation and one of the world's leading educational institutions. So when we see people coming out of that environment with a relaxed attitude about cannabis and that the University of Michigan fosters, you know, intellectuals which go to all corners of the globe, uh, you really do have an opportunity here for Michigan to make an impact across the nation and across the world. So when we saw uh, the medical marijuana program 
being offered to voters, there were already a strong group of people here in Michigan who were supportive. Uh, in 2004, uh, we had a couple of gentlemen who uh, decriminalized or essentially legalized cannabis use in Detroit, also in Ann Arbor, and then in Flint and in Traverse City. So prior to the medical vote, we'd had several local victories of significant amount. So when Michigan voted on the medical program in 2008, it was approved by a whopping 63% of our citizens. Now, that is a ringing endorsement, regardless of what proposal you're talking about, is 63% of your citizens are in agreement, especially something that was still at that time federally illegal. So building on the success of that 63%, we made several efforts to uh, expand the medical program, uh, adding new conditions, uh, opening up new freedoms for people. But we did face a very hostile court system here in our state our Court of Appeals and our Supreme Court, and then lower courts as well, still seem to want to hold on to those prohibitionist-style attitudes from pre-2008 times. So it's been a difficult road for many of the people who registered as cannabis patients and also for the activists who's led them. But the legalization proposal uh, was really very, very successful because we had strong statewide support as well as the involvement of our national partner, which is Marijuana Policy Project. Marijuana Policy Project has fostered uh, pro-cannabis laws in, I don't know, dozens of states here in the United States, whether it be a decrim, whether it be a medical or full legalization program. So with their assistance, we were able to secure some national funding and, uh, and, and be able to take on the large burden of collecting about 350,000 signatures in order to have about 255,000 valid ones. So it could very well be the case that the openness of the citizens of Michigan is what enabled the current circumstances to take shape. If not for an informed and open-minded public with the legislative powers Rick already mentioned, Michigan would more likely resemble its neighbor to the south, Indiana, where cannabis is illegal for any purpose, though CBD was permitted there last year. So I think it's safe to say Michigan is well on its way to becoming a regional leader as far as cannabis goes, and hopefully other states in the area can follow its lead. I asked Rick to impart some additional words of wisdom or sage advice that potential cannabis entrepreneurs or activists might find useful. One thing to remember is that traditional business rules do not apply in the cannabis business environment. Because we have an illicit market, which supplies cannabis to people all across the, uh, the state that's been in existence for decades. Supply and demand rules that you would see for milk or for butter or for automobile tires, they don't apply here. Because there's a side-by-side a, a -side black market that people can slide back into. So just because you have a business degree from an Ivy League school doesn't make you an expert in how to, to retail or how to cultivate cannabis. So it's something that entrepreneurs should not dabble in unless they've already had some experience with the cannabis industry firsthand, which is why oftentimes when we see people with large pocketbooks making investments in cannabis, they stumble a few times, and that's very costly. Uh, here in Michigan, we have a medical marijuana business program which is launching, and we'd intended it to make mom and pop stores and give an opportunity for a small business to really thrive. And unfortunately, it hasn't really worked out that way 
because the legislature's put some very large requirements for capitalization and financial security on it. But it still could be that place where the guy who's been growing cannabis for 20 or 30 years has an opportunity to take that knowledge and turn it into a successful entrepreneurship. So that's still a reality here in Michigan that we're chasing, but it's closer and closer every day. So being wealthy and greasing other people's palms isn't necessarily a model for success. And many people in states with medical or recreational cannabis laws in place also fear what Rick describes here, and they too would like to give their mom and pop pot shops a chance at success. That there is no shortage of people who want to grow cannabis or process it or sell it is clear. What does require a lot of work, however, is the legislation around producing and distributing it, and that could be a fight nationwide that could last for years. Given the decades-long struggle cannabis activists have already endured, I asked Rick whether there is reason to be optimistic going forward. I'm very optimistic about our opportunities, both on a state level and on a federal level. And beyond that, I'm also optimistic on a global level. Because let's, let's think of this. Hemp was taken out of cultures against their will by the wishes of the United States of America through the way that we enforce treaties on other nations and the drug war hysteria that we instigated. If we reintroduce hemp in places like the Amazon, where when we deforest the Amazon rainforest for immediate financial need, for example, to, uh, to grow grass for cattle, once that ground loses its nutrients, it no longer grows grass successfully, so they have to move cut down more trees, and then uh, grass that particular area. But what happens to the area that they abandon is that typically it erodes away, it never returns to, to a fertile status, and it becomes a problem. If we're able to use hemp crops on those particular plots of land, we can stop erosion, we can give a cash crop to the indigenous persons there so that there's no more financial incentive to cut down trees in the Amazon rainforest. Consider Africa. If we introduce hemp into some of the arid regions where other crops typically don't grow, hemp being very drought resistant, we have an opportunity to give a cash crop to, to villages that simply don't have a way to generate income and suffer globally because of it. We also introduce a crop that can be used for food and fuel and fiber locally. Now, think about, too, Chernobyl or uh, the... the the reactor disaster that we've had in Japan. Hemp is able to phytoremediate soil. So when we reintroduce hemp into those areas, uh, they can utilize hemp crops, which can be grown. The Russians get three crops a year out of their hemp plants. Uh, that can help to take some of the contamination out of soil and return parcels of land back to useful purpose. So I'm excited about what marijuana offers the world, but I'm more excited about what hemp offers the world. And to most citizens of the, the planet Earth, they don't distinguish between marijuana and hemp. They don't. So when we, when we liberalize laws for one plant, we increase awareness of the other. And I think that's a wonderful thing for our, for our population you know, everywhere. I wrote an article for High Times Magazine in 2015 on this exact subject. So this has been something that's been kicking around for a while, but until hemp was legalized by the federal government, it was just a dream. 
It couldn't yeah. really be. It couldn't really be realized. Now that we've had that prohibition removed by the United States government, it's a possibility for us to to allow other nations to explore hemp and what it could mean for them without violating treaties. So, <laughs> I mean, this is really just two or three months old. We're talking about very cutting edge stuff here. Your podcast is fantastic for being able to explore all of those newly exposed corners of what could be a billion dollar industry. So it was the U.S. that was the main actor in spreading prohibition of all forms of cannabis, industrial hemp included. Ironically, it is the U.S. where prohibition is crumbling and at a pretty fast pace. Rick's optimism for hemp can be quite contagious, honestly speaking. And it's not just the U.S. that is embracing hemp. Europe is undergoing a CBD craze at the moment, and despite the prohibition of THC-containing cannabis in most EU countries, European hemp has played a significant role in developing a hemp market across the globe. What America experiences when we've liberalized hemp is that we are looking for positive seed stock, either for, for hemp plants that produce fiber, hemp plants that produce seed, hemp plants that produce bast, uh, which is used in different functions. And the European supply base is where we turn to when we need hemp seeds. So the fact that, that there's been continuous cultivation and science invested in by European nations, the United States, Canada, and China all have benefited from that. So we're all sort of indebted to the European nations who've continuously explored this despite all of the international pressures to stop. So we're, we're indebted to that entire continent for that effort. I will say, too, that from persons like yourself and myself who are making news media uh, from the cannabis industry, it's never been easier for us to communicate uh, at any time in mankind's history uh, over great distance. So those of us yeah. who are gatekeepers of the information, right, those of us who, who have the ability to influence masses of people, we have an obligation, and, and it's an obligation to get the story right, to not be fear-mongerers, and to inspire others to do better. So I'm hope, I hope that, uh, that I'm able to do that for your listeners as well as for yourself. So that's great. And on that very positive and optimistic note, we say goodbye to this week's guest. Once again, Rick Thompson, thank you so much for the conversation today. Good luck with uh, all the uh, legislation uh, happening in Michigan in 2019 and uh, all the best in the new year. Thank you. Same to you. That was episode 16 of the Critical Grass podcast. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to share with others, preferably not by coercion. We shall return next week with yet another exciting episode, so stay tuned. My name is Bogdan. It's been a pleasure. Hasta la pasta.